Welcome to the Czech Podcast. I'm Brady Vixilio, owner of Steinhober's Restaurant in La Bella Italia on Laskin Road in Virginia Beach. And I'm Alvin Williams, co-host of the Czech and owner of Cobalt Grill Restaurant in Hilltop, Virginia Beach. If you've listened to our podcast before, you'll know we've been talking about restaurants, people who work in restaurants, who own restaurants, and the people who like to dine in restaurants. That's right, Alvin. And of course, we also talk about the reasons restaurants exist, which would include food and wine. We've taken our podcast on the road, and we're at the beautiful Barbersville Vineyards, not far from Charlottesville. Today, we have the honor of speaking to one of the best winemakers in the country, Luca Pashina. Thanks so much for hosting us and joining us for the chat. Luca is the real deal. Here's a bit of background about him that really only just scratches the surface of what he's accomplished during his career. Born in Torino, Italy, and was an assistant winemaker at an Italian winery where his father was the head winemaker, has been the general manager at Barbersville for 30 years. His wines have won multiple Governor's Cups, named by James Beard Foundation as as one of the 25 most significant wine professionals in North America. Inducted into the Order of Merit of the Italian Republic, the Order of Merit is the highest distinction in occupations that reflect the honor on Italy and its people in cultural pursuits, the economy, public service, the military, philanthropy, and humanitarian activities. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Barbershop. Let's go back to 1990, when you first arrived here. At that time, Barbersville Vineyards had 42 acres of vines and produced 6,500 cases of wine annually. Today, the vineyard has more than 105 acres of, of vine and produces more than 37,000 cases of wine. Luca, what brought you from Italy to this small vineyard in central Virginia? It's a long story. <laughs> okay, we got time. <laughs> Thank you for saying that because really... Um, it's a very crucial part of my life, uh, the, the early 90s. Basically, I started making wine when I was 14 years old. My father's a winemaker. I learned from him a lot, but the main thing I got from him was it was his passion permeated into, into me, and I, I did uh, become very interested, passionate about wine at a very early age. As I said, when I was 14, I remember my dad said, well, you know, this harvest... I'm going to let you do your own first batch of wine. And it was so fascinating that I decided to shift from this. I was in a school of agriculture and I shifted to a school of winemaking and grape growing in Alba, in the northwest of Italy, which is one of the most famous regions of Italy, the, the Lange, where they produce Barolo and Barbaresco. Yes. And uh, I worked there then with my father in this company from 82 till 90. During those eight years, I had a chance to travel quite a bit. I did internships in Napa Valley for six months. Six months, I was in upstate New York. I did three months in the Penedesin, close to Barcelona. I worked in Puglia in Italy. I worked a lot in Piemonte, where I was from. I spent two years in Switzerland, actually trading wine from all over Italy, all over Europe. So, on those two years, I was detached from the vineyard and I've detached from the cellar. I was basically trading uh, bottled wines and shipping wine in bulk from Italy all over of Europe, as I said. At the end of that period uh, in Switzerland, I, I came to understand that my future should have not been in, in the commerce of wine, and I had a strong desire to go back to the vineyard. 
And I told the owner of the estate, I said, look, I don't want to do this anymore. I know I'm doing good work, but this, I have no passion behind. And I say, I want to really be in charge of your vineyard operation. And I think he thought perhaps I was a bit too young yeah, uh, for some reason. And the answer was no. And I said, well, then I have to leave the company because I can no longer do this work. I sent out 70 letters to all the family of Italy that I know that were committed to quality. One of them was the Zuning family that owns this estate. And they texted me and say, we read your curriculum and it's of, of interest to us because we have an estate in Virginia. And would you consider to go there for three months as a consultant and then come back and tell us what we have to change to improve uh, the future of Barbosa? Interesting. That's why I'm here. Small world. It is. So your passion stemmed from your father initially and him trusting you with the vineyards. And then all that travel around. I mean, that must have been interesting traveling to all those different countries and learning new things. It, it was, uh, it was uh, fun for those especially like to travel. But really, it was really uh, a time of, of my life when, when I, needed, I needed my eyes open to different experiences, new languages also, new way-making, ma- way grape-growing techniques. I understood how the world of wine was no longer just the region where I grew up. But it really opened me to many other style of wines and winemaking techniques that I, I, I couldn't even learn in school. When you first came to Barbersville, you came as a consultant. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey over the years here at Barbersville? And what did you find here when you first arrived? And what's the current situation? Yes, what I, what I found uh, here uh, was 42 acre of vineyard already planted many different varieties that some of them planted in the 70s, some very obscure varieties like Alicante Boucher, for example, just to name one, or Malvasia Bianca. And then the classic, the Merlot, the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Cabernet Franc, the Riesling, the Pinot Noir. They planted many, many things here to understand what would fit best in this climate and this soil. The thing that really I understood clearly is that the type of uh, plant material, the origin of the plant material from the 70s was of low quality. You have to think of grapes, a similar way you think of a, of a breed of a dog. There are a lot of uh, English setters, but some have better features than others. The same thing is for grapes, they're called clones. They're not cloned like the sheep that we heard from England years ago, they're just plants selected in existing old vineyards, they identify one vine that has the best traits. From that vine, they propagate other vines. That's something that here was not done yet in the U.S. The, a lot of the U.S. nursery has plant material that came early here, late 1900, early 1900, very generic. And so what they planted was not really the best genetic plant material that was then existing at that point in Europe. And I learned in my 80s in California, they were starting to do joint venture between nurseries in Italy, France, and California. So in the early 90s, I knew there was access to great plant stock. And when I went back, I told the owners upon the the end of my visit, and said, what do you think we should do there? I said, well, there are many things to be addressed, but the number one is we have to gradually remove all the vineyard we planted and plant better plant material. 
that was the biggest limitation, not only for Barmouth, for Virginia as a whole. And that's what we did. Good wine always starts at the, at the farming. Good, good winemakers are always good farmers. That must have been a, a shock to them when you said, you know, you need to pull all this stuff up and we need to replant because, you know, you want the best in show, like you, you're making a simile to, to dogs and, you know, you, you, want, you want the best. Yes, and uh, I knew that it could have perhaps uh, been not the thing they like to hear, although the answer was very much uh, uh, in agreement. And Mr. Dring said, I know that the plants don't have the best traits. I know some of the vines have viruses, they have diseases because of the origin. And I'm glad that you figured that out and say, the problem is, are you ready to go back and take care of what we need to do? Do you think they were testing you to see if you were the right guy when they... I, I, pretty much so, yeah. absolutely. They didn't tell me, go there, and they didn't list the problem. They didn't say, look they for this had. or look for that. They, they just said, go there, work there, work the harvest there with the winemaker that was here at that time. Come back and tell us what you think about the place and w how we can improve it and go to the next level. It sounds like you got to that next level. That is the current situation. Yes. Uh, to, to get to the next level, it took, like I said, planting new vineyards with better stock, removing existing vineyards, and also replant them. It took many years to do it. We didn't remove everything in once. It took about 15 years to move everything. So what are the oldest vines you have on property? The oldest, the oldest vines at this point are from the early 90s. We started planting very aggressively, especially in the mid-90s, 94, 95. We then had, unfortunately, a poor quality of harvest in 96 because of weather with these new plantings. In 97 and 98, we had incredible great vintages when it comes to weather condition. And that's when we produced wines that were so good that personally even thought it was way beyond what my expectation were. And I remember talking with the, with the founder upon his annual visit after the, the fall, we tasted the wines. He was so happy, of course, since 76. 20 years later, finally, you drink the first glass of wine, great glass of wine, work glass. And I told him, I said, look, the thing is now, uh, the, the next hurdle is that we have the great wine, but we have to promote it. And I don't believe promoting with strict, strictly just advertising. I think the best thing to do is to open a great restaurant. And we did open Palladio Restaurant in 1999. I say this is really the way that a wine uh, traveler, somebody that travels for wine tourism, will experience in full why we make wine. And the experience is going to be staying there forever. I want to create a lot of wine ambassadors. And so we opened Palladio in 99. And uh, then in the early 2000, we had some great reviews. And, and we were finally established as, what I say, a world-renowned uh, wine estate. It was late 90s. We're in Thomas Jefferson country. Monticello and the University of Virginia are just right down the road. Jefferson was passionate about wine and even tried to establish vineyards at Monticello. Can you give us a quick history lesson, Luca, about Jefferson's connections to Barbersville and those early days of Virginia wine? Yes, Jefferson becomes, uh, I would say, almost the first wine aficionado for the simple reason that he 
spent several years in France as the ambassador to the U.S. So there he was exposed to the great wine of France, the great cuisine of France. He then also traveled to the northwest of Italy, actually through the region where I'm from, and discovered uh, like rice, for example. So he collected a lot of... Uh, a lot of information there exposed to many different things that were not existing in the US and so when he comes back at Monticello he has this desire to establish a vineyard entirely with grapes brought from Europe he even brings in a family of, of grape growers from Italy the Giannini and uh, he did seven plantings he was never able to produce a bottle of wine from it. Most of the planting died. He had to replant and replant. He planted in... The last big planting was in 1807. He planted 22 different varieties. All the vine died again a couple years later, and he gives up at that point in 1807. So you go from 1807 all the way to 1976 to have another serious attempt yeah. of planting many varieties of European grapes finally successful so it, that's a very in interesting uh, element to the history of Virginia and to the history of this estate it's a major space in time between trying and failing and then to now success absolutely but it was worth it <coughs> it was worth it. it we could have been much further ahead if somebody would have been successful but that's that's what happened I understand Jefferson had some ties here directly to Barbersville and the ruins represent that Yes, in the on on the estate there's a, there is a what is a registered historic landmark that was designed from Thomas Jefferson for Governor James Barber, uh, who was a governor of Virginia, and as as he ends his term as governor in Richmond, comes back and they start construction of this uh, this beautiful building. It took them seven years from 1814 to 1821. Coincidentally, 1821 is the year that the Italian family is founded in Veneto at the same time. Jefferson, uh, beside uh, learning about uh, wine and agriculture, he also admired the architecture of Europe. He purchases uh, what are the four books of architecture by Andrea Palladio. Andrea Palladio is an architect from Vicenza, the northeast of Italy. That's where the founder is from, of this estate. So there were a lot of things connecting Jefferson to wine, Jefferson to architecture of a region where the Zoning family founder is from. So that was another element that to the founder was of interest because there was a history going back and forth from the old world and the new world. And so uh, today they're still standing as a ruin and are open to the public to visit every day of the week. We maintain them as a ruin and and all around, we created a state of uh, wine with the vineyard. Let's widen the lens to take a look at the modern-day Virginia wine industry. A few years ago, Todd Haymore, former Virginia Secretary of Agriculture and Forestry, said, Luca has done more to enhance Virginia's reputation in the global wine industry during the last two decades than any other person I can recall. What's been your role in the growth of the Virginia wine industry? You know, the destiny brought me here. In Virginia, at a time where the Virginia wine region was not even yet considered a wine region. It was still searching for what we can grow, the style of wine we can make. 
So the timing was right, personally, to be in a place where I could put to work the experience I collected. I found a lot of uh, friendly, a very friendly environment, a lot of support, for example, from the state of agriculture and the tourism. And, uh, and I was in a place where I had a lot of uh, an open book to start uh, drawing whatever I wanted on it. And uh, it just worked. It took time. And I also, with other growers and vintners, in the early 90s, they were doing similar things. We joined a lot uh, of knowledge together and we shared a lot of knowledge. Luca, obviously uh, Jefferson had his challenges growing uh, vineyards back in the day. What are the biggest challenges that Virginia winemakers are facing now? And how have you been able to overcome them? I like to say that the biggest challenging uh, for me here are two. The weather. Yep. Like most farmers do face challenges. Virginia can be from a very dry season to a very wet season because the topography and geography of where we are between the Gulf Stream, the jet stream can do all different type of take all different type of shapes, yeah. bring us high pressure from the north, humidity from the south. So that's the biggest challenge. The other challenge is the people. And I'm one of them. The people? Okay, <laughs> explain. What because do you mean? Because we are unpredictable. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a way to say that to, in, for me to, to, to produce a quality wine, uh, I have to face challenges with weather and be a good person treat people with respect and even in a bad day be able to put up my best effort and that's what I look at surrounding myself is with good people. The rest is, uh, is really not, I don't consider that a challenge because equipment, you can buy equipment and, 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 and today with technology you can communicate efficiently. Still to me the biggest challenge is be able to get up every day as a human being, have the right attitude and then deal with the weather. Yeah, yeah, that conquers all. Do you ever have snow here? We do. And how do you deal with that? Does it, do we have two tractors. We have to plow everything. Oh, really? But uh, some of our workers, actually, that uh, prune the vineyard, they, uh, time, they, they go in and the foot of snow, you just have the right boots and light gloves. And we, we, farming uh, grapes, the season is uh, all year round season. We start in the fall. Early November, we start pruning. We finish pruning in March. Then we have to tie the vine, pull the leaves, tackle the growth into the canopy, edge the vines, pull weeds, then pick the grapes. We have a little break for a month. Yeah. Leaves go down. Here we are again. That's a lot of work. It is. You have to wake up with the right attitude every morning. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I understand. You produce a wide variety of, of wine here at Barbersville, but Octagon is your centerpiece. Can you tell us more about how Octagon came to be such an important wine for Barbersville? Yes. Uh, we created this brand in the early 90s. My goal was to produce the most beautiful red wine I could from this estate, from whatever grapes uh, I could select with, within the farm. The big change came, as I said, in the late 90s when really not only I had access to different type of grapes from different vineyard sites, but we really get like the right uh, plant material that produced this very, very, very high quality. 
What really made Octagon such a well-known wine nationwide and internationally was its quality. Uh, the name is also captivating, of course, we call it Octagon. Octagon is a shape that you find in all of Jefferson drawings. And to me, also, uh, was a way to connect the history of this place, the desire of Jefferson for great growing and the owners coming from the region of Italy. And, and his name is also a name that is easy to remember, but it has some meanings. Another element that made Octagon very important is that category of wine, the Bordeaux blend. Bordeaux is a region of France where they blend predominantly Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, a little bit of Petit Verdot, Malbec very rarely. But we also chose a blend in a category which is world-renowned. By doing that, we position our wine in the middle of a lot of competition. And when you can have a very high rating within another group of wine that are very well-renowned, you elevate very quickly the, the, the exposure and, and the potential for recognition. Hey, it's Robert, the producer. We had such a great conversation with Luca Pacina during our road trip to Barbersville Vineyards that we decided to split this podcast into two parts. So please tune into next week's show to hear part two of our conversation. In the meantime, please visit thecheckpodcast.com to listen to this podcast, see pictures, and check out all of our other podcasts from the past weeks. Thanks again for listening to The Check, and we hope you'll catch part two of our trip to Barbersville Vineyards.